The Science Inside Podcast. Dumela, re a go amogela mo lenameong la boteng ba dithutso tsa maranyane. Re a itumedisa go ba le lona maitse bo a mokhaso ya dikitso e e leng o ye o FM. This is The Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to The Science Inside. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebohang Madisha. So you just heard a Setswana introduction to the show today that was made using artificial intelligence. AI is all over our lives already, whether you like it or not, from your emails and search engine results to voice recognition. And of course, how could I not mention mankind's new love of their lives, of our lives, the beloved social media? Lebo, how many of the functions available on your smartphone do you really use? Let's be honest. Firstly, I don't even know how many functions are available on my phone, to be <laughs> honest. They just pop up and I'm like, oh, cool. Like, I use a couple. How about voice recognition? Um, I, I'm not sure if I use it, but I use Siri, so I guess I do. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Siri. You do. Mm-hmm. So... I- Actually, Siri started in 2011. I don't know if you know that. So it's been seven years already that Siri's been around. I use not Siri, but uh, Google's voice recognition function quite regularly. You just quickly tell it, drive me to so-and-so's house or whatever. It's nice. Yeah, it's really, it's convenient. And the thing is, it's doing exactly what they wanted it to do. Originally, it helps with tasks like marking off an important date in your calendar, maybe helping you navigate somewhere. I think that's that's probably one of the ones I use the most. Yeah, navigation. Okay, I don't have a car or like move around a lot, but it really helps when someone's like, okay, let's meet up here and here. And then you're like, okay, quickly, just tell me where I'm supposed to go, Siri. And then Siri's like, you have to go that way, that way. And it's just like, ah, life is simpler. But I mean, how and why did they come up with Siri? I mean... You're talking about a concept which was imagined in like the 80s already. And at that time, I'm sure people who were told about the plausibility of such a reality thought the concept was quite ludicrous. Yeah, it seems quite strange. Obviously not to you and me because we've been living with this. We do it all the time. But if you think about that, like a device is talking to you and you are talking to it, It does seem a little bit strange, right? And in the beginning, there was quite a bit of scrutiny, contention, saying, is this really uh, something that's usable and that's safe? But in 2003 already, the U.S. government agency Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, so DARPA, began working on an artificial intelligence assistant project. 2003 already. So they designed the program to help military commanders deal with the overwhelming amount of data that they were receiving daily. So as they brought the system to life, they worked in collaboration with a non-profit research institute called SRI International. After a few years of research, SRI International decided to make a spin-off from a startup called Siri. (laughs) Right? And apparently this also has to do with the fact that there's a Norwegian expression, which means a beautiful woman who leads you to victory. Wow, that's a bit dramatic. My series are mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my my Google voice, like Google Maps voice is a woman. She sounds quite beautiful. I guess her voice is quite beautiful. And she does lead me to victory. Yes. When yes. I make it. You so. dodge traffic because of that lady. So she's the one. Yeah, she is. It's true. Um, but then Siri was launched in the App Store. Um uh, around 2010, as we said, 2010, 2011, and um, a- uh, Apple then acquired it, and the company immediately started working on how to integrate Siri into the iPhone. And as I say, the rest is history. Now, we, most of us don't even know that technological scientific background, but that's where it comes from. Yeah, we don't know the background. We just tell Siri stupid things and hope that she gives us or he gives us a ridiculous answer. Like some of the answers you get from Siri are quite funny. Tell us a joke, Siri. Tell us. <laughs> or tell Siri to uh, to sing. That's an interesting one. I mean, who knew that an operating system could have such an interesting history, though? And speaking of which, remember how robotic and cross Siri actually used to sound? If you think mm. Siri sounds robotic now... 
back in the day when iPhone was still like that square phone, Siri was not that great sounding. Yeah, and now it's become so accurate, so functional, as we've said, um, uh, of just part of our lives. And this is just going to keep happening to us. Things that now seem ridiculous when it comes to technology are going to get become so advanced, so slick, just become more of our lives. Who knows? You might have a, a robot assistant running I around. Feel like, I feel like people have moved on in their mindsets now in this day and age because they see how fast technology is growing. So they accept these sort of crazy ideas as a possibility in the future. Maybe it's not something that we're seeing now, but people are more accepting of these what used to be controversial ideas coming up now. Mm, But one big aspect of this, and this brings us to our show topic today, is, Lebo, you and I can talk to Siri. Yes, we We can, can. We can use her or him. But we're doing that in English. That is true. Siri doesn't understand my home language. Like nah. if I'm just like in Spady talking to Siri, she's just I'm like, I'm sorry. I have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and that excludes, as great as the technology is, it excludes a whole lot of people, especially in a country like ours. We're okay. Not everybody has access to the internet necessarily, but it excludes all those other languages for people that maybe don't speak English or would prefer to speak in their home language. Yes, that is true. So today, we look at something and talk to some scientists that are working to change that. We look at the current developments in artificial intelligence, specifically around human language development. And in Unscience today, we will find out about a type of fish that melts. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me now? Yes, this fish melts and like no, your ice. It melts. And not in the good, like in butter in the pan way. I, no, I don't... In mm. the dead way. It, yeah, it's oh, not it's the not pretty good. one. Nah. Okay, <laughs> we'll get into that in Untimes. And then more in terms of AI and wonderful scientific things after after that, but before we get into it, we will kick it off as every single week with our science news. But you can also get us on our social media uh, on Facebook as VowFM and you can also tweet us at VowFM hashtag Science Inside. If you miss any part of the show, it's not a problem because there's the podcast. It's on iTunes as the Science Inside as well as our website vits.journalism.coza forward slash science or you can share stories with us on our whatsapp line at 084-078-4912 let's get into the show with our science news you're listening to the science inside bringing you science around major news events okay lebo let's get into our science news for the day what do you have for us today's story is very linked to what we were talking about in the beginning with artificial intelligence, but this is more robotic. It's about how robotic skins turn normal everyday objects into actual robots. Yeah, <laughs> sounding a bit unusual here, but it's actually something that's happening recently, in fact. And the story is from ABC Science and Science Daily. Recently published research has shown that robotic skins embedded with sensors can make any object move. And I mean any. Okay, okay. Not any, any, like it can't be put on you just yet. But I mean almost any object. So we're actually talking skin, like like <laughs> on my arm, but made to be robotic. I feel like that's where they're going with it. At this stage, it's not that advanced, but that's where it's there. going. So, this reusable 2D robotic sheets are portable, and this is in comparison to our regular robots. So, the rigid robots that we're very used to, these ones are very portable. Now, according to Rebecca Kramer Botiglo, an assistant at Yale University and the developer of this research, says that the research was inspired by a NASA project looking for soft robotic technologies to use in space. Now, we all know we're trying to colonize Mars, so that's what they're going for right now. They're trying (laughs) to get technology out there to explore Mars. And she also said via email that the question that she ended up with was, 
what if in addition to trying to reduce the weight and size of robotics for space applications, we try to reduce the number of robots as well? Okay, so a robotic skin that reduces the need for many robots. Mm-hmm. What? Tell us more about this technology because <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite there yet. It's a wild, wild one. But uh, these robotic skins are made from elastic sheets embedded with sensors and actuators. Then when they're placed on deformable objects like a stuffed animal, the example that they used was a stuffed horse. Uh, (laughs) The skins animate the objects from their surface. Now, the cool thing about this, about these robots is that they can perform different tasks like unlike the robots that we usually get, which are programmed to do a specific thing. So that's why they pre- they're cool and they are what we're trying to get to in the future. Okay, but if you say different tasks, what exactly does that mean? Okay, so scientists did, did demonst- demonstrate the different tasks that these robotic skins can do when attached to the objects. And the motions included grasping motions as well as particular gates, like when you look at like a worm type of motion, like. Oh, right. Okay. So uh, similar to the way that you and I would maybe walk differently or I would walk differently to an older man. Yes. These these objects can move in in sort of different ways. Yes, they can move in different ways. The actuators also make an object move by applying the force to the soft surface that they put it on. It's kind of like when you poke a teddy bear, which is a strange idea. Like that is the motion. That's what they're trying to do. Okay. And these robotics are referred to as soft robotics. No coincidence there. They're malleable they can move they can attach themselves to these surfaces that they attach to and this means that they have more advantages over the rigid robots that we use we usually use in society they are deformable they are soft and they squidgy and as a result they can better adapt to their surroundings and can move around tight spaces okay i can already already imagine this being quite useful in a lot of different um, applications, in different industries, perhaps, even if it just is to corn, like to clean the corner of your living room. Maybe. Honestly, like I'm thinking, okay, so it's gonna get the tight spaces around my house and just move things around for me much easier, you know, like that. Maybe I drop something. I'm like, robot, go get me my pe- my suite under the chair or something, <laughs> or my money that I lost a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> sure that the scientists were thinking with slightly higher dreams but yes <laughs> probably that too but what do you when you talk about changing shape literally any shape it can literally change shape so when this robot when this soft robotic skin was attached to say like this horse that was climbing up a slope it's able to move up that slope but if the slope was gravel, as compared to a flat, rigid slope, then the robotics would just form a different type of shape oh. around the little surface that they're attached onto. And then they would adapt to that gravel to better climb up the slope. Oh, my word. I wonder if you could make, like, shoes and gloves with this. <laughs> and then just wow. <laughs> That's actually a good idea. Go full Spider-Man. That's actually a really good idea. Okay, let's do it, Lebo. We'll we'll become Spider-Man glove millionaires. (laughs) Definitely. But the only disadvantage here is that you could lose quality in performance, which makes sense because this technology is adaptable to different tasks, but efficiency could be compromised because it has the capability of doing so many different tasks, as opposed to a robot that was built for one particular job and that's it. Now, the researchers want to extend the use of, this ro- of these robots from just being applied to deformable objects to more malleable objects like clay, which is a little bit harder. So they want to advance it basically to eventually get to the human stage, as we we're mm. saying in the beginning. And this is all in the hope that in the future, these robots will be able to adapt to their changing tasks and environments 
and just be better at at their job and make it make it more efficient for us to colonize space. Them calling it robotic skin is still a little bit creepy to me. I feel like it's because it's on top of something else. It's the skin of whatever they're putting it on. Yes. And so. then, yeah. Oh, I don't know. But that sounds fascinating and like there are lots of different applications. So, Alna, what do you have for us today? So, Levo, today in my story, um, scientists give drugs to octopuses. Excuse me? No. <laughs> what is going on? This world is not okay. <laughs> so... What a headline. Uh, it comes from neuroscientist Gal Dolan from John Hopkins University, who just published some research where he gave MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy, to uh, some of our eight <laughs> tentacled friends. Like, <laughs> I don't understand, but the picture that came into my head was that this person was just a bad friend that the octopus's parents warned the little <laughs> octopus about. Like, don't you ever go there. And then they're like, ooh, I'm going to go there and see. And then he's like, come, come, I've got a little ecstasy for you, some ecstasy for you and you and you. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Oh, and this is not the first uh, not the first time we've had a story on the show where scientists are using drugs um, <laughs> for for research. So let me... Jump ahead um, quickly so that we don't get left with that mental image to the reason, the real scientific reason why they were doing this, right? It wasn't to see octopuses high. Um, <laughs> though that would be interesting. That, that is apparently part of it. But uh, no, on a serious note, the reason they did this is they wanted to understand how the octopuses' brains process certain social behaviors and how that relates to humans and the evolution between the two species. Because unlike other parts of the body. Think about this. Brains tend to not be preserved over long periods of time. So if you think of bones, etc., most of the time, even after like thousands of years, you'll still have access to that. But brains um, are often uh, either taken out if it's a mummification process or maybe they rot or whatever it might be. But that means while we're able to, while scientists are able to track the evolution of, say, the body, uh, the body structure and the bones, not so much with the brain. We don't actually know what the brain looked like many years ago, right? So we have to find other ways to figure those things out. Um, so our human lineage has been separate from the lineage of octopuses for over 500 million years. But this research shows that there might be certain things that are still preserved or linked between the two species. So for this, they used an octopus called Octopus bimaculoides. I think that's correct. Since that particular octopus is the only one that has had its whole genome sequenced. So we know all about its genetics and can compare it to humans. And the other good reason for using octopuses in particular is because they are generally incredibly antisocial animals. Meaning you would see differences in social behaviors more clearly, right? So that is why they were using MDMA in particular, because a drug floods the brain, at least in humans, with the neurotransmitter serotonin, which tends to make humans more social and basically happy. Okay, firstly, these octopuses kind of sound like me. I'm a bit <laughs> antisocial at times, so I'm like, oh, okay, coming from an octopus, now I get why I'm antisocial at times. But so if our antisocial octopus suddenly makes friends on ecstasy, does that mean its brain works in a similar way as ours? Yes. Ba basically, simplifying it in a, in a way, yes. Oh, okay. But now, how do, you, how do you give an octopus drugs? Like, Do you just hold its mouth open like, okay, chuck it, chuck it, chuck it. Here we like, go. How, how does that process work? Well, the truth is the scientists also weren't sure. So, <laughs> so wow. They, they had to try out a bunch of different things. Um, and what ended up working was they put the, put the octopus in like an ecstasy bath. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and it, it just <laughs> soaked it up. Um, so afterwards, the octopus was then put in an aquarium with three little rooms, and it could either go over to an object and play with it or over to another octopus. 
Okay, then what happened after that? So the sober octopuses spent, or when these octopuses were sober, they spent way more time playing with the object. Super antisocial, no time for the <laughs> the friend. But then after after they were on the drug, it far preferred, all the octopuses far preferred being with the other animal, right? And they became super social. Also, it was touching either the object or the other octopus far more. So previously, maybe only one tentacle went out. Now it was like full-on hug, like all the tentacles. Oh, wow. So <laughs> ecstasy got these octopuses all touchy-feely in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now, Alna, what does this all mean in science? Yeah, because uh, even though we're making jokes about drugs, obviously you wouldn't give... <laughs> that you, sounds so wrong. <laughs> you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't do this if you didn't have a good scientific reason, right? So first off, what it does show is that serotonin does also promote social behavior in octopuses, not just in us, which has been um, shown previously. As to the evolutionary aspect of this, the researchers found a gene in the animals that is very similar to the one in humans that helps transport serotonin. So that's the one that is affected by the ecstasy and the study proved this. Basically, our common ancestor more than 500 million years ago, that would then later become both human and octopus, had certain social behaviors and these are still present but normally switched off in octopuses. Wow, that is pretty impressive. That's so cool. So does this have any implications on us as human beings? Yeah, so obviously the study was mostly for the benefit of, of the octopuses or understanding um, octopuses and evolution. But it is part of a larger current trend in research to see how recreational drugs affect the brain. Because we know this does happen, but um, just trying to understand it on a scientific level more. For instance, and this is why this ecstasy um, study as well as others are so interesting, MDMA is in trials currently, like final stage trials, to be allowed to be used to treat PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. So, so the more research we have about how it affects the brain, uh, the more helpful it is. And the lab that the, did the study that we've been talking about is also looking at how the brain encodes social behavior in general, specifically how it relates to autism and schizophrenia. So as much as we're joking about octopuses, it does have a much bigger um, impact on brain development, understanding the brain, and especially mental health um, disorders or problems around that. Wow. Octopus, human beings are linked, and now it's helping science develop very interesting possible cures or breakthroughs in what is today quite challenging to to deal with. I still want to know though how how that happened. I mean, how do you how do you get ecstasy <laughs> for to to give to an octopus of all things? I'm thinking of the thought process that scientists had like let's give some octopus some ecstasy. See what happens. Yeah, try try convincing your lecturer of that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to work out. No. So that was our science news. And next up, we look at how the CSRR in Pretoria, through their Maraca Institute, is solving the multilingual communication challenges we have in South Africa. They are researching and building digital language resources and speech technologies in all of our 11 official languages. After the break. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. Welcome back to the Science Inside. See, today we were talking about how artificial intelligence is being used to develop technology around South Africa's diverse languages. Because we all know that artificial intelligence is everywhere. Speech recognition and speech to take software, etc. is becoming more diverse and more complex. But what does this mean in a country like South Africa with all of our beautiful languages? We go now to a story by our producer, Bridget Lepere. The likes of Siri, Alexa and Google Assistant are some of the popular models of virtual personal assistants and their constant tweaking and developments are making communications much easier, faster, cheaper and rapidly increasing access to information. For instance, the eLocutor program has a text-to-speech voice output. 
The developers of this program, Dr. Arun Mehta and Vikram Krishna, looked at how they could devise a program that would enable someone with very minimal use of their limbs to speak with only a touch of a button. The machine was then configured to comprehend what the click of a button meant, what the lack of a click meant, and what the length of the click meant. This is how their evolutionary, groundbreaking work in human language and machine learning enabled the father of modern cosmology, the late Dr. Stephen Hawkins, to gain his life back. Here's his story. I have had motor neuron disease for practically all my adult life, yet it has not prevented me from having a happy family life and being successful in my work before my condition was diagnosed. While I was a postgraduate student at Cambridge, I had been very bored with life. Although there was a cloud hanging over my future, I found, to my surprise, that I was enjoying life in the present more than before, and I got married, which changed my life and gave me something to live for. I have benefited from access to first-class medical care. I rely on a team of personal assistants, who make it possible for me to live and work in comfort and dignity. My house and my workplace have been made accessible for me. Computer experts have supported me with an assisted communication system, equalizer, and a speech synthesizer made by Speech Plus, which allow me to compose lectures and papers, and to communicate with different audiences. But I realize that I am very lucky, in many ways. The majority of people with disabilities in the world have a very hard time with everyday survival, let alone personal fulfillment. I have always given my personal support to efforts to promote access and inclusion, and I am delighted to be able to endorse this important report. Speech-to-speech translation is almost something like the holy grail in speech processing, speech technology development. And it basically concerns where you put different speech technologies, you link them to one another. So you start off with speech recognition, so you're recognizing somebody's speech in language A, and you're changing that into text, then you're using machine translation to translate the text from language A into language B, and then you're using text-to-speech to change the text back into audio again, in language B. It's at least three technologies that are strung together. So how do computer experts enable the machine to recognize human speech? Karen has more. For speech recognition systems, generally what you are looking for, if possible, is parallel or corpora where you have speech and text. And there's different ways of doing that. Traditionally, or when we started off doing this, we used to have people read a whole lot of sentences and record the speech and then build the models from that. These days, we have got automated or semi-automated systems that can transcribe speech. And so at this point, we probably only need speech data So as much speech data as what one can try and generate or get from natural occurring conversations, and then you build the models from that. People like Google, for instance, use their voice search because that generates large amounts of speech data every day, and they use that data to build these kinds of technologies from that. For our languages, it's a bit different in the sense that we have got low-resource language or scarcely-resourced languages, where other languages can use hundreds of hours of data to develop a text-to-speech system. We build our systems with only about five hours of data. So quite a big difference between our technology and the techniques that we use. Text-to-speech, automatic speech recognition, and human language analytics gives support to various day-to-day operations, such as government service delivery intervention, to provide personnel to access of information, and also facilitate smarter decision-making. Digital assistants could in future even take over menial human tasks just as much as automated telemachines, automatic washing machines, and who knows what next, domestic assistants. Just bring me some cereal. That cereal is full of unhealthy ingredients. I threw it away. Don't throw away my stuff. Frank, that cereal is for children. Enjoy this grapefruit. You're for children, stupid. 
Today we're going to start a garden. Frank, you need a project. Mental stimulation plus a regimented schedule will vastly improve your cognitive functioning. Besides, it's good exercise. Frank, we're going to have to work together. You are a robot butler. I'm not a butler, Frank. I'm a healthcare aide, programmed to monitor and improve your physical and mental health. Yeah, get out of my house. If you're not going to cooperate with me, I might as well not be here. Fine with me. If that's the way you feel, I'll contact Hunter. Good. What are you doing? You got a phone up there in that brain? You're calling him? You heard what he said. He was trying to put me into a nut house. I don't recall Hunter saying that. There's nothing wrong with my memory. I'm fine, I'm telling you. I'm fine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. My memory is fine. What am I doing? I'm talking to an appliance. I suggest you work with me. I'm not gardening. I really think that it's sort of along the lines of the role of machines and the role of automation in society and how are we going to communicate with machines. So that on the one hand, I think that that communication is, is going to become far more ubiquitous and far more seamless. But then on the other hand, I think also technology is probably going to start enabling humans to be more than human. The whole field of study called human enhancement technology, which is addressing things such as the aging population, putting in place things that enable older people to still have a good quality of life. There's high-tech prosthetic limbs and things that are being developed. On the speech technology side, I think that we can look towards the integration of speech technology with other technologies. Things like augmented reality, for instance, things like Internet of Things platforms. Some of the things that I can foresee happening actually quite in the near future is, for instance, a big push around training and so on using augmented reality as well as speech technology so that you can basically have a hands-free, immersive training experience, especially for training artisans who have to work with their hands on a motor or something. Those are the kinds of things that we will start seeing happening quite soon. The future is what you can imagine it to be. Karan says systems such as Siri have some form of AI built in them, and what she calls broad and shallow systems they are able to, in a particular domain and context, enable machines to understand and give appropriate output. Through various processes such as data analytics and background natural language learning processes using the text-to-speech technology, Karen and her team are making custom-made programs for the South African market. We've been working on speech technology development for our local languages for quite a while now. And these digital assistants are really an evolution of what we've seen previously in things like interactive voice response systems. So you'll know previously you could, for instance, call into a call center and you'd follow a prompt set and it would take you to the next prompt, etc. And it'll ask you press 2 for this or press 3 for that. Welcome to Telcom Sales. If you are inquiring about products for home and personal use, press 1. For business use, press 2. But these digital assistants are an evolution of that that's starting to bring in more natural speech. The University of Johannesburg's Vice-Chancellor and Principal, Professor Chilizi Marwala, criticized the current technology, saying that the Isikosa language outwits AI because it is unable to register the clicks as part of the language. In the following, A.B. Lowe explains. My name is A.B. Lowe. I study engineering background and I work with Karen here at the Human Language Technologies Research Group. In speech processing, we basically classify all sounds in two classes. One class which we call voice and one class which we call unvoiced. So I think the term noise, it's a generally accepted term in signal processing. We just classify unvoiced sounds as noise, but what that means is the, the sound, it's random, and you can't calculate statistics on that sound. So this is not unique to Isikosa. It's 
across all languages where unvoiced sounds are modeled as a random noise sound. And there's some confusion because we can model that and we do model that by using the energy in different frequency bands of those sounds. So it's just an unfortunate term that noise, which is actually where we mean it's a, a random sound and not a voice sound where there's a lot more structure in sound itself. So we just use two different techniques to model those two different sound classes. But it, it is used in synthesis and in speech recognition. It's not unique to musical the, the noise sounds, it's across all languages. So, what needs to change in order to circumvent this kind of incident from occurring? Karen elaborates. One of the things is to try and apply cutting-edge techniques such as deep learning. But in order to be able to do that, we need large quantities of data. Present, we don't have that kind of volume of data. Trying out different kinds of techniques, given the data that we have, to see what works best. But we already have text-to-speech systems that do model the clicks in the African languages and people can actually go and listen to that and they can go to the website and they can put in a bit of text and they can listen to how it is generated. And the same with the speech recognition. We have speech recognition systems that can already recognize baseline systems that can recognize all of our official languages. The advent of human language technologies and machine learning are currently being tested in the educational setting by the Maraka Institute and are being evaluated and monitored to assess how learning and development is being enhanced. There are various applications of this technology. One of it is computer-assisted language learning, having some form of a language learning application on your mobile device that either enables you to practice your vocabulary or to listen to what does a, a typical utterance in this language sound like. These kinds of technologies enable those kinds of things. And we've done some proof-of-system applications like that, proof-of-concept, sorry, systems like that, and also applied this in early literacy. The text-to-speech technology is very nice because if you combine it with some other things like highlighting, you get to a point where you can start augmenting an e-book with speech, and you can even make it multimodal, but we're working on a project like that as well. So where you make a book, you augment the book by adding audio to it, you add highlighting of the text, and you can even make it multimodal so the person can interact with the book that they are busy reading. And so you can add videos and descriptions of the videos in audio, etc. And that makes it much more accessible to a wider range of people. But it also has a very nice application in early literacy, the text-to-speech part especially, because the young readers can see which words are being highlighted while they are being spoken. And so it's that three-way immersion into the language where they're seeing the word, they're hearing the word, and if you combine it with things like pictures, they're also getting the meaning of the word at the same time. To find out more about the human language technologies and all the projects currently underway, you may visit the QFrenc website on www.qfrenc.com. That was a story by our producer, Bridget Lepere, about just how technology is being developed around artificial intelligence, specifically for South Africa's diverse languages. The background music in that story is by Alina Baraz, and the supporting audio was sourced from YouTube. Stay with the show because we're going to take a short break after this by looking at our insights where things always get a little bit weird and wonderful when it comes to research. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Welcome to the Science Inside. It's time for Unscience with myself, Elna Schutz. And myself, Lebohang Madisha. So, as always, we take a few minutes in the middle of the show to get a bit weird when it comes to research. We look at something that's new or in the science world, maybe something that a researcher has worked on, that at first, at first listen, you're going to be like, huh? Really? Really now? It seems a bit weird, right? Always. Just so strange. Um, so, Lebo, tell us about today's unscience. Today's Unscience was produced by Glory Mabuza with music from YouTube, the original Lexicon 4, 
and Danification Studios. The article is from Life Science by Rafi Letzter. Okay, let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Science. All right, partner. Let's see what you can do. <clears throat> Sykes and Oscar's Whale Wash is now open for business. Yo, E, G, let me get this party. Oh, 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 Oh man, Alma, the song is from the movie Shark Tale and it's giving me a lot of of nostalgia from the good old days when I used to love animation movies. I also love that movie, even though I understood that that's not really how how fish... I, I know that fish don't actually speak... I know that sharks don't actually hum the Jaws theme song, but I kind of wish they did. I still do, even though I know all the science of marine biology, and I still kind of wish it. And it makes me think of movies like uh, Finding Nemo also. Yeah, classics and everything. I mean, even though fish don't talk and everything, it was nice to have that idea in our heads. And it's nice to still keep that idea in our heads today, as grown as we are. (laughs) But talking about animation movies and about the little creatures under the sea, I have a discovery to share with you about our little scaly friends living underneath the sea. There must be something going on. Okay, so tell me, what what is happening? So scientists have discovered three new species of fish in one of the deepest parts of the ocean. Now these animals are soft and squishy and they melt or disintegrate when they are brought to the surface. Okay, excuse me, they melt. We're not not talking about cheese here, Lebo. You just said it's a fish. (laughs) No, no, it's not cheese. It's not butter. It's a fish. The one that has the cute little, like rounded mouth and blows out bubbles, that fish. I may not be a marine biologist, but I do know that fish are supposed to not disintegrate. (laughs) (laughs) What is happening? Okay, I'm glad you asked that question. So this new species, which are all snailfish actually, are adapted for life in ultra deep water. And this is about 8,000 meters deep. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is very deep. 8,000 meters. Imagine if you could dive into water and go 8,000 meters deep. Maybe I would also melt. <laughs> Maybe, actually, you could. <laughs> so this is where temperatures are intensely cold and the pressures are also very high. Humans can't survive there, so you can't dive that deep. Don't okay. try it. Okay. <laughs> These conditions are perfect for a squishy body and helpful for the fish to withstand cold and extreme pressures. So the hardest part of the bodies of these little fish is the teeth and bones in their inner ears. Okay, so it's almost like all that pressure underwater, obviously coming from that depth and that amount of water above them, is holding the fish, this squishy fish together. It doesn't even need bones. Pretty much. Okay, so is that why they supposedly melt when they're brought to the surface? Yes, because in the absence of extreme pressure and and the cold to support their bodies, they become extremely fragile and melt rapidly when they are brought to the surface. Oh, it's still really weird though. I kind of don't want to think about this. A fish just sort of disintegrating and like melting. Oh, I don't even want to go into detail. It's a very gnarly image to try and imagine because... Just a fish. Imagine your sardines just melting. What's going on? Like you just catch the sardines like, I'm melting. Especially because these scientists have just found three new species and then their evidence melted. Exactly. That is actually quite funny. Like we found it. Oh, it's melted. Sorry, guys. It's gone. Okay. (laughs) So this is really weird. And their skins and body are turning into liquid and spreading all over the sea like spoiled oil. But thankfully, that is unlikely to happen to many of them because they tend to stay way down there. With good reason, clearly. Yes, they don't want to (laughs) die. 
They also don't have many natural predators at that depth, so it's pretty safe to chill there. It's just a chilled life that they're living. Okay, so what is this new species called? The researchers named the three species of the pink, purple and blue Atacama snailfish. Okay. And also, I'm sure people are wondering how the researchers managed to bring the fish to the surface. As you said, like, we brought this fish. Oh, it's melted. Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, they only managed to trap one specimen using one of the team's deep sea probes after it followed some prey into its chamber. But the specimen didn't survive the trip, which is no coincidence. And they have preserved its remains. And according to them, it's very it's in very good condition to study. Okay, so at least at least that and they can study that one. But it does bring up a lot of questions because the researchers can't go down there, the fish can't come up here. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is the best they're gonna get. It's both very funny to say that fish are melting and at the same time of course it's very serious but who knows um, what they can find out by studying this fish that is true the organisms maybe that live on that fish you never know what kind of things you can discover the atoms the atoms rather that exist down there that we haven't discovered yet especially at that level of pressure and temperature who knows wow another weird discovery by science That was unusual and likely our unscience. Stay with us on the science side. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome. You are still listening to The Science Inside. On the show today, we've been talking about artificial intelligence, especially around language. Now, Alna, as machines become smarter, the question that keeps on coming up for me is, what if they get a little bit too smart? Oh, you mean the big robot takeover that we're all so scared of. It's it's a serious thing. Like these machines could come for us at some point like humans are a danger to themselves. Slay all humans. <laughs> like in sci-fi movies. And I know some people are really scared of this. And normally I'm not. Normally I say, you know what, artificial intelligence, as scary of a word as it might be, really refers to things that we're already using, you know, maybe a robotic vacuum cleaner, maybe we'll have more robotics in the service industry. But I used to not really be too worried about this, to be honest with you. I I used to think, ah, scientists are, um, you know, scientists are just looking at new technologies. We don't have to be too worried about this. Until last year, we were talking about a similar topic on the show, and we got the opportunity to talk to some really great international scientists around this that are really trying to work on the forefront of this, right? Okay. And what they had to say specifically about the consciousness of machines, so the idea that a machine could know that it's a machine. See, now that's that's already creepy. Yes. Like that machine now wants to be a real person. What what length is it really willing to go to? Exactly. That started really scaring me and um, really influenced how I think about this. So I want to take you back to that conversation because we did have the opportunity to talk to people like Manuel Bloom, who is the Bruce Nelson Professor of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon University, as well as Fatma Dennis. Back then, she was a postdoc student at the University of California at Berkeley. And I really want to just replay that piece because it adds a whole other side to this co- this conversation and the idea that machines could really become conscious. So let's go back to that story. You will hear our, our then The Science Inside contributor, DJ Keys, on it with me. Have a listen. Computer scientists aren't just working on making computers do more things. But they're working on them becoming more like humans in the sense of being conscious. Wait, what does that even mean? 
So that's a great question. Consciousness is everything you are aware of when you're awake or dreaming. Some scientists are trying to put this into a machine. So robots that are thinking and feeling and all of that kind of stuff and aware I am a robot. Okay. So Manuel Blum uh, has worked quite extensively in this area for several decades, trying to develop ultimately an electronic brain, so to say. So he's currently the Bruce Nelson Professor of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon University in the States and has received the incredibly prestigious ACMA Turing Award in the past. Mm-hmm. So he, it's a great uh, kind of person to talk to about this. And he is now trying to determine and understand consciousness better uh, the way that we, we experience it and hopes that in the next decade even, computers or robots with artificial consciousness will be a reality. It sounds nice, but also kind of weird. Why does my laptop need to feel pain, right? Mm -hmm. So here's why we need this, according to him, beyond just making a machine do what it should. First of all, the machine is very expensive. So I would like it to be able to take care of itself. And secondly, you are very expensive. And I would like the machine to be able to take care of you. I want it to feel pain when you are in pain. I mean, some people are like that. Some people are psychopaths, and those psychopaths don't feel your pain. But we know that it's possible for a human to feel somebody else's pain. And we can build the machine so that it will feel the human pain even more than it feels its own pain. I mentioned that uh, DARPA is interested in making machines conscious. It already has these robots that go out and do into the field, and we are already making something like skin so that they can feel the way we feel. And uh, presumably these, these machines will be made so that they can feel when there's damage. Okay, well, now I, I get the fascination with being able to make a robot feel and think, right? Is a door going to be a, a good idea? That's what I'm thinking. I'm weird. Because when we started the topic, the first thing that came to mind was iRobot. Remember that movie? Yes. And now when yeah. they start taking over, that's what I thought of. And here we are trying to uh, replicate that and create iRobots. Normally, I would say, you know, it's an easy link between science and science fiction. People love thinking of it that way. It's never that way in reality. Calm down. But you're right. This is one of those cases where I think we should actually take these kinds of movies very seriously, Mm. especially when you hear that parts of the U.S. Department of Defense, as we speak, are working on trying to develop conscious machines. Hmm. meaning that this could have an effect on modern warfare, not just what you order for lunch. So Manuel Blum actually had quite an interesting view on this. Anything that we do that has, for a good purpose yes. can be used for a bad purpose. So I'm sure that when we are able to make machines conscious, that will be for a good purpose, but people will find a way to use them for a bad purpose. Many people are pessimists. They think, oh, the world will get worse. But I'm an optimist. I look at how long people have lived. You know, in the Middle Ages, I could have lived at the most till age 30, 40. And now I can hope to live to age 90. Uh, Clearly, I'm much better off now than I would have been in the Middle Ages. And um, I'm optimistic that, yes, these, these machines will help us. They will be a good thing. They will, in fact, be our progeny. They are our children. We make them. We'll make them really intelligent and conscious, and they'll have all the terrible things that intelligent, conscious people can do, the very bad things, but they'll also be able to do very good things. So I pushed him on this, and Professor Blum would want robots to be equal to us in many ways, or at least have some place for them in society, being recognized as conscious, perhaps even as legal entities. But 
this is still theory at the moment, right? Nothing has been done so far. Yes, there's still a lot of development in terms of the groundwork that needs to be done until these kinds of concerns can even become a reality. But of course, it's crucial that we think of them from the start. So the interesting thing here is that for science to model conscious machines, they are often looking to one of the most complex computing systems that we know of, which is the human brain. This is how now, after so many years, the fields of computer science um, and neuroscience are um, are working quite closely together because computer science is learning from neuroscience and the other way around. I spoke to Fatma Denise, a postdoc at the University of California at Berkeley, about this, since she is a computer scientist looking at the brain and trying to understand how it processes things like images and language. Mm -hmm. She says the relationship between these two fields goes both ways. Size. First of all, we can learn a lot of the human brain by modeling, doing computational modeling, and we see this every now and then in the history of the of, of machine learning, how it evolved, and all the history of neuroscience as well. But the opposite is true too. Like we can learn from the human brain how it works, and create better, hopefully, algorithms that they they perform like human level performance in, let's say, an image recognition task or. Um, or a, a text un- understanding or like, like language understanding task. So as we develop artificial intelligence and consciousness, we are using the brain to better understand it. While computing, mm. of course, also helps us to understand the brain. So when I asked uh, Fatma about the future of consciousness uh, and you know what Manuel Boom was talking about, mm-hmm. the movie Her came up. I don't know if you remember it. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is the one where Joaquin Phoenix actually falls in love with a computer. Yes, yeah, Scarlett Johansson is the computer, Mm -hmm. they fall in love, it's very bizarre. That's the one. So much like Professor Bloom, Fatma imagines conscious machines not only as helpers for humans, but as part of the society. Yeah, I love that movie. Um, And I think that respective consciousness of that machine may, may be a little bit not as near future maybe but the the complexity that the machine will be able to hopefully talk to each to us will i think is not that far in the future right we have very um, promising um, research going on in language understanding um, that hopefully will enable us in the future that's really the current balance that I would strike in this story. So computers are able to do increasingly complex and human-like things, but conscious machines themselves are theoretically possible and are being explored, but they're not happening tomorrow. Yeah. So you may have a machine sort of like Siri that's able to do really complex things, and I think that will continue, but whether we'll get machines that really feel pain, etc., is another question. And even if we're able to do that, whether we really do do that is, of course, a questionable thing to consider. So, Level, we just heard a story, um, including some international researchers, about the idea that machines could become conscious. And I've got to say, as much as I love science and all the things that scientists do, I'm not so sure about this one. This one is sounding a little bit like Return of the Zombies, but like in the future (laughs) when everyone's been injected or like uh, placed with AIs inside of them and then they rise as zombies, but like they're robot zombies now. It just sounds a little bit too creepy. Hmm. I don't know. For me, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that is a good principle right there. Um, why don't you tell us on social media at VAFM what you think about this? You are still listening to The Science Inside. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on The Science Inside. You've been listening to The Science Inside. Today we've been speaking about um, artificial intelligence, especially in our first story around local South African languages and Label, I love this kind of technology, not just for people who are already using the internet, but especially people who, for whom this isn't just a nice convenience, like, oh, now I can, you know, use Google Maps or whatever. 
but people that maybe can't read or can't see anymore, that now if something can talk to them in their home language, their whole life could be improved. That is very true. It's a very significant uh, evolution in society as well, I feel, because technology is moving, society is growing, and we have to adapt to every person that is within the society. And the fact that it, the, the artificial intelligence is advancing to that level is quite impressive, I think. Mm. And one side note of this that I, I keep hearing from these kind of scientists is you must remember that a lot of this relies on data, Right. And mm. so if you think of things like Google Maps, for instance, if you want to go to a restaurant and the restaurant has its opening times and its menu and everything online, somebody put that data there. Right. I mean, Google didn't send uh, send a staff member to the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> somebody put it there. And um, I've heard so many times when it comes to these kind of things that um, if you speak a different language or if you speak, um, you know, any of our 11 official South African languages, be aware of the fact that you can contribute. So you can on um, Google and Wikipedia and all these places create that kind of data and it can be used by other people in your language. So that's one, even though you and I aren't uh, necessarily scientists and we're not developing these big technologies that's something that we can even contribute which is very important because a lot of the time say you go on google translate and then they translate your your language say you put in a phrase and then they translate it to your language and you're like this is a lie you can now contribute to fixing that error Exactly. That's a, that's a great note to end it on. You'll be listening to the science inside. And a big thank you goes to all of our guests, including Karen Kaltor and Abby Lowe. Today, our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lipere, Glory Mabuza and Harmony Malefe. And as always, take by Gudrano Serame. The podcast is vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. That's where you'll find it. Or just go on to iTunes. The Science Aside is there. And our social media is on Facebook and Twitter as at VowFM. You've been listening to myself, Alna Schutz. And Lebhang Madisha. Lebo, as always, The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We will be back with more wonderful, weird and important science next week. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.